Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for the clear revelation of yourself that you've made to us in your word. Lord, we thank you that when you speak, you reveal to us who you are. We thank you for the tight connection between what you say and your character. And Lord, we praise you that when we experience what you have communicated, we experience you. So Lord, thank you for telling the truth to us. Thank you for not making your word depend upon a gauge of public opinion or, or, or being someone who is fundamentally unstable and unreliable. Lord, we thank you that you are true, that you are righteous, and that your word is true. And we pray that it would have its way in our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to have the kind of experience of your truth that makes us those who see, those who understand the effect the light has on the path that is in front of us. Keep us from being those who are blinded in heart and who step in holes that will break our ankles or step on traps that will snap clothes and shatter the bones of our, our legs. Lord, keep us from ruining our lives, from crippling ourselves. Cause us to experience your word as a light to our path, a lamp for our feet that has effectual results in the way that we live. Make us wise. We are simple. We are foolish. And we are we're pleading with you to give us the wisdom of your word. Cause us to treasure it as we should, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Psalm 119. And as you're turning there, I want to read a few lines to you from a piece that I found yesterday. This piece is entitled, A Portrait of Stalin in All His Murderous Contradictions. So this is about Joseph Stalin, who was uh, the leader of the Communist Party in Russia through the middle part of the 20th century. And it's talking about the way that Stalin came to power. And the, well, the way that the Communist Party really consolidated power. And so this article relates, it's, it's actually a book review. It's a, it's a biography that's being reviewed here. And, and the reviewer writes this. The first section of the book focuses on the Communist Party's drive to abolish private landholding. Okay, that means individual people who own a plot of ground. And the Communist Party wants to abolish that. And the way that they go about doing it is um, they force the landholders, the people that own that land, into collective farms and they eliminate them. And the reviewer writes, the human consequence, consequences were, in the author's words, the author of the book that's being reviewed, nothing short of an apocalypse. 
Famine resulting from social upheaval and drought killed between five and seven million people. While five million of these landholders, these people that owned land, five million were arrested, deported, or murdered. I don't know how you get your head around numbers like that, other than to say something like what Elie Wiesel said about the Holocaust, when he said, you know, when you, you talk about the, the Nazis um, killing six million Jews, what you really need to say is something like, one Jew was killed, murdered by a Nazi, and it happened six million times. Five million landholders deported, arrested, or murdered. And, and this, this author of this book asks, how did he get away with this? How did the public not rise up and throw him out? How did all these people put up with this treatment from Joseph Stalin? And this is what he says. The parties, the communist parties, monopoly on information and the public's receptiveness to wild claims about the danger of, subver of subversion from within. That's what enabled it. The party's monopoly on information. That's how they got away with it. People didn't know what was going on. Look at Psalm 119, verse 129. This is what led me to, to, these, to look, go looking for statements like this. Your testimonies are wonderful. Do you hear what the, the author of this psalm is saying? Your word is a treasure. It's amazing. He's responding to the revelation of the truth. God's own testimonies, this guy is saying, are wonderful. He feels this because it is so good to have the information. If you don't have the information, you're lost. If you don't have the information, you don't know what's going on in the world. If you don't have what is revealed in the scriptures, what do you have? Look at what he says here. Well, I should, I should, I should back up and, and talk a little bit about where we are before we just plunge in. So let me, let me um, just give you a, a brief overview and setting of where we are. Psalm 129, if you haven't been with us, is a set of 22 eight-verse stanzas. Okay, so... Uh, these eight-verse units, they all start with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each, each unit, and it, and it goes A to Z through the alphabet. And um, the way that the 22 are grouped is you get two at the beginning, and then uh, two sets of four, that, that adds up to ten, and then two at the top, and then two more sets of four, and then two at the end. And we're in the second to last, or uh, we're in the last set of four before the final two, which we'll look at next time. And, and as we've worked through this, as you work through this psalm, um, something begins to happen to you as these statements communicate over and over again how precious God's word is. And, and this, this long psalm, it, it just reiterates this truth to us over and over again. So recently I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who has memorized the whole thing in Hebrew. Um, you know, I, I think it'd be a great thing to memorize this thing in English. Um, my, my friend has memorized it in Hebrew, and he said to me, he said this to me. He said, it's wonderful, Jim. He said, I wake up in the morning, and the Bible is talking to me. He said, I wake up in the morning, and before I get out of bed, what I do is I recite to myself one of these eight-verse units. Can you imagine living like this? Wouldn't this be great? 
Let me, let, me, let me encourage you. Here's a point of application. Let me encourage you to set yourself to memorize the Bible. And, and I wanna, I'm going to give you a specific challenge that grows out of Gabe's testimony. And, and I want to say also that if you didn't listen to uh, the elder testimonies, uh, you're not doing your duty. You know, you got privileges and responsibilities as a member of Kenwood Baptist Church. You're not doing your duty, and you're missing a blessing. You should go listen to these elder testimonies. Gabe talked about how uh, John Piper came to the church that he was a, a member of and challenged the whole congregation to memorize Romans 8. And he talked about how it changed his life. So I'm going to stand here right now and say, if you're not memorizing something else, you ought to go memorize Romans 8. You ought to do it. And if you've never memorized a chapter of the Bible, you ought to start there. Martin Luther said every Christian should rehearse to himself the truths of Romans 8 every day. Now, if you're already memorizing something else, I mean, I know of one guy in the church that has committed himself to memorizing Psalm 119. Stay on it. Don't, I mean, if you can add in Romans 8 too, great, wonderful. But, but don't stop what you're doing to do this other thing. But if you're not doing this otherwise, if you're not memorizing something else, I want to challenge you, every member of this body, I want to challenge you to set yourself to memorize Romans 8. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. Um, look, look at, I've, I've noted how these eight verse units, they sort of come in two sets of eights. And one of the ways that this, these next two sets of eight are marked Look at the first words of Psalm 129, 119, verse 129, your testimonies. And then look at how 144 starts, your testimonies. And as we go through, we're going to see ways that these two units are, are linked up with one another. Uh, but it's, they start and end with these references to your testimonies. Think with me for just a minute about what the psalmist is saying. He is saying that the living God... The maker of heaven and earth is giving testimony. It's like God's on the witness stand. And it's like God is giving his account of things in the Bible. So the statements in the Bible are God's testimonies. And if we think about what he's talking about, your testimonies are wonderful. He's probably talking about the creation account. He's probably talking about the wonders that God did at the Exodus. And he's probably talking about the way that God gave Israel the land of Canaan and the promises that God made to his people about how he's going to fix the world. Your testimonies, this guy says, your account of the world's origin, the world's problem, the remedy that your word gives, and, and the destiny, your account, God, of all of this is wonderful. It's, it's, it's like an astonishing amazing thing to behold. That's what he's saying. Your testimonies are wonders. And then look what he says in verse 129. It's like he says, you know what my soul is? This, this inner man of me, it's like a safe. And I'm going to take these amazing jewels and I'm going to put them in the safe and I'm going to lock them up and I'm going to treasure them and I'm going to guard them and I'm going to keep them. Therefore, he writes in verse 129, my soul keeps them. Because they're so precious, I'm going to preserve them within me. This is a man who has felt the phenomenal force of the truth of the Bible. So that, this, so that God's statements in the Bible have become for him like jewels to be guarded. What makes God's word so valuable? Well, it's the truth it tells. And that truth... That truth is so much better than something like public opinion. Uh, public opinion, I, I came across um, this, uh, this reminder 
of, of the nature of public opinion in, in a, a blog post that's titled, Telling and Amusing Headline Progression. And, and the guy lists out um, a list, of, it, he gives a list of Paris newspaper headlines reporting the journey of Napoleon across France on his return from exile on Elba uh, between March 9th and March 22nd of 1815. So they had decided that Napoleon was a criminal, they had exiled him to this, this island, and now he's escaped, and he's on his way back to the capital. Uh, March 9th, the anthropophagus, I had to look that word up, it means the cannibal, <laughs> the man-eater, has quitted his den. Okay, so they're, they're describing him as a cannibal on March 9th. March 10th, the Corsican ogre, Napoleon was from Corsica, the Corsican ogre has landed at Cape Juan. March 11th, the tiger has arrived. March 12th, the monster slept at Grenoble. March 13th, the tyrant has passed through Lyon. March 14th, the usurper, notice how it's getting softer. <laughs> We're not at man-eater anymore. The usurper is directing his steps toward D Dijon. March 18th, Bonaparte, now they're using his name. <laughs> they've, they've stopped calling him names and they're using his, his actual name. Bonaparte is only 60 leagues from the capital. March 19th, Bonaparte is advancing with rapid steps, but he will never enter Paris. March 20th, Napoleon will, tomorrow, you notice Napoleon, tomorrow will be under our ramparts. March 21st, the emperor. Now he's got a title of esteem and respect. The emperor is at Fontainebleau. March 22nd, his imperial and royal majesty arrived yesterday. From the man-eater to the imperial, and that's, that's public opinion. That's public opinion. And look at what the Bible says about the difference between public opinion and itself in verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. Light. The Bible shines the light on the world. This is what makes God's word so valuable. It gives light, and then look at the result of the light in verse 130 there. It imparts understanding to the simple. This is what I was, I was praying about for us. When the light shines, you see the trap and you realize, if I step on that lever, lever it's going to smash my leg. It's inevitable. It is certain. So you should think to yourself, before you respond in anger to your wife, if I talk to her this way, there are going to be devastating consequences. Let the Bible shine light on your relations to one another. You should think to yourself, if I click that link, that link, it is going to kill me. Let the Bible shine its light. You should think to yourself, if I fudge on my report, it's probably going to come to light someday. Somebody's going to do the math. It's going to come out the way that I've cheated or lied or stolen or whatever the case may be. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And we who are simple, we who think nobody's ever going to know, I can get away with this. The Bible says, no, you won't, you fool. And we go from being simple 
to being wise and understanding. And this psalmist recognizes, he's experienced the Bible such that he recognizes his need for it. And, and, he, and he recognizes how desperate he needs it. In verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Now, there may be several things prompting this. At one level, as we move through this, we're going to see that God's commandments themselves, they testify to the truth. God's commandments, by just being written down and standing there as testimony against humanity, they say there is an absolute standard of justice that everyone recognizes. And what that also implies, this testimony of the word of God, is the wicked will one day be, be punished. If you go steal and you go murder and you go commit adultery, you're not going to get away with it. And, and this week I was listening to someone who was asking... The, they were asking this person the question, uh, how do you respond to the pastoral problem of the, the, prospering, the prosperity of the wicked? And this was a really academic setting. And it wasn't, it wasn't appropriate for me to, to respond and say what I thought. But one thing I want to say is they don't really prosper. They don't really, like the Bible talks about, they may look wealthy. They may look like they have all the worldly things you could ever want. But look at them. They're miserable. And you start talking to them, they're mean, they're nasty, they're unhappy, they're un the wicked don't prosper. They may, they may have all the money, and they don't prosper. Look at them, they're empty, they're hollow. The wicked do not prosper. And, and so this guy is saying, I think it, part of what he's saying here when he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments, part of what he's saying is, your commandments are not being enforced, and I'm longing for your justice to be enacted here. He also knows that there's a person behind the commandments. He knows that these are not just abstract, absolute truths out there. These things are flowing from the heart of a personal God. So look what he says next, verse 132. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. You hear what he's saying? God, I want you to turn your face to me, and I want you to be gracious to me. And I think he has, he has uh, precursors in mind, a couple in particular. One of the, from, on the basis of what he's saying... The way that he said, the unfolding of your words gives light. And look at 135. Make your face shine upon your servant. I think he's thinking of Moses' experience at Mount Sinai, where Moses is in the presence of God, and he comes down, and he doesn't realize that his face is just radiating light. And I think he's also thinking of number 6, 24 through 26. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And he's asking for that. 132. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. People that love God, this is what God does for them. He turns his face upon them. He extends his grace to them. And he knows, he knows particular ways that he needs grace, and he starts asking for them. So these first, these first four verses of, of uh, this eight-verse unit... Um, these four verses have focused on God's awe-inducing, light-giving promises that produce longing for God and prayer. Look at what we got there. You got light-giving, wonderful promises in verses 129 and 130. 
that result in longing, verse 131, and prayer, verse 132. That's what the Bible does to you. You want to go, grow in Christ? You need the Bible. You need to study your Bible. It will make you long for God. It will prompt you to pray. And then, in, in the second four verses of this eight-verse unit, he outlines exactly what kind of grace he wants from God. Look at verse 133. Keep steady my steps. My steps here, his steps, he's talking about his way of life. He's talking about the way he behaves, his, his manner of living. This is a figure, my, his steps are a figure of speech for this. And, and what he's saying is, I want you to establish the placement of my feet as I walk through life in accordance with your promise, in, in accordance with what you've said. Make my life, Lord, line up with what you've said you're going to do. And then he says, this is a prayer we all need to pray. And, and all of us, every one of us in this room, until Jesus comes and we get glorified or we die, are going to need to pray this prayer. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. It creeps. The, the, the spies and the, the, the infiltration, it's all around us. We constantly need to pray this way. Let no iniquity, you know what dominion is? That's rule. Don't let it take over my life. This is a guy that, that probably has, this psalmist, he probably has the Torah memorized by heart. This is a guy who is experiencing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a guy who is a master poet. I mean, this guy's command of Hebrew is unparalleled. This is, this is a really impressive person writing this psalm. Do you see how he's praying? Let no iniquity get dominion over me. He's a human being. Every human being, as long as we live, we're going to need to pray this way. Don't let it get me, Lord. Don't let it rule in my heart. Don't be discouraged if you feel yourself having to pray this way. You're in good company. Rejoice that the prayer is there. Look at what he says in verse 134. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. What he's talking about here, he's saying, Lord, I need you to help me within me, and I need you to help me without me in the culture at large. Because what wicked people try to do is they try to make wickedness normal. They try to make it where this is just what everybody does, this is how everybody lives, everybody cheats, everybody steals, everybody kills, so we're all just going to do this, and nobody's going to complain. And then the winds change. You know, public opinion shifts. And now what everybody was doing is all of a sudden a cause for a whole bunch of people to be losing their jobs. Redeem me from man's oppression. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, yeah, don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is we need to pray that God would make the society righteous. That's what we need to pray so that we could obey God's precepts. That's what I'm trying to communicate here. Verse 135, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Notice how he's put verse 135 after these other things. So I think there's a, an important progression here. Verse 133, I'm, I'm going to say, essentially, cause me to live an obedient life, okay? And, and don't let me get tangled up in sin. 134, make the whole society righteous. And then it's like, as a result of that, Make your face shine upon your servant. I think what he's saying is something like this. The more holy I am, the more of you I will get to experience. 
The, the more you obey, the more of God you will experience. Make your face shine upon your servant. And then the more of God you experience, the more of him you want. And teach me your statutes. Cause me to know the inner coherence and, and the, the lasting value of the things that you teach. And then there's also a result that this has on him uh, that, uh, that prompts him to respond to the wicked, as he does in verse 136, where he says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. I was reading to the kids this book uh, called Watership Down, which is about these rabbits. And one of these rabbits is a prophet, and he, he, he has the ability to sort of discern the future. And, and the, good, the good rabbits are being attacked by some bad rabbits, and, and yet um, they've come up with a plan, and, and by means of the heroic self-sacrifice of their leader, they're going to be delivered. And the prophet rabbit, as he's standing before the bad rabbits, who they seem overwhelming, they seem like they're about to slaughter all the good rabbits. The prophet rabbit says to one of these bad rabbits, I feel really bad about your death. You're, you're about to die, and I'm really sorry about it. You know, it's one of those situations where it doesn't look like it's going to turn out that way at all. But this guy, he genuinely cares for these people, these bad guys, and he feels bad about what he knows is going to happen. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. We, one of the reasons that we want to tell the gospel to people is because we know what faces them if they don't repent. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, the Bible says that if you die and you have not trusted Christ, you are going to stand before God and give a full account of your whole life. And he is going to measure you by the standard of his, his own righteous character. And those of us who have turned to Christ, none of us want to face that on our own. Those of us who have turned to Jesus, what we've said basically is, Jesus is righteous in a way we never could have been. And so when it comes time to measure somebody according to God's own righteous character, I want God to measure Jesus. I want him to be the standard uh, that, that I'm measured by. And so I'm going to turn away from all this stuff that is in rebellion against God, and I'm going I'm to place my hope and faith in Jesus. And remarkably, what God does, because he's merciful... Because he's loving, as he says to those who will turn from sin and trust in Christ, I'm going to let the righteousness of Jesus count for you. He's going to stand for you at the judgment. That's what God says. So those of you who are here and you're not a Christian, that's what we want for you. Our we, we identify with the psalmist. We could shed streams of tears because you're going to face the wrath of God if you don't turn to Christ. But if you'll turn to him, you can have his mercy too. Uh, these next, this next set of eight verses, verses 137 through 144, um, it's, it's, it, it, folk, it swi switches to the connection between God's righteous character and the way that flows out in God's righteous word. And so if you're here for much time, you'll hear probably somebody around here say, I mean, this is what we believe about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is inerrant. And basically, the reason we believe the Bible is inerrant is because we believe that God tells the truth. When God starts communicating with people, we don't, allow, we don't believe that God allows error into that communication. And we believe that because God is righteous in who he is, 
When he speaks, what he says is going to be right. That's why we hold to the doctrine of inerrancy. So look at verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are all your rules. You see the connection? God, you're righteous. Therefore, the rules that you make are righteous. Verse 138. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness. There's that word again. That word righteousness is going to happen five times in these eight verses. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness, which means that God is not only righteous in who he is, he's also faithful to who he is. In other words, it's not going to become convenient for God at some point to move the goalposts so that his team can score a touchdown or so that his enemies can't score a touchdown. And because it's convenient for him, he does it. He's not going to operate like that. He's faithful to his own righteous standard. I've got to, I've got to, I want to try to contrast that for you with uh, something else that has happened in the recent past. And um, I'm, so I'm, going to, I'm just going to read you this headline. I may be tempted to read you a paragraph or two from this article in the Washington Post, but I think the headline will probably uh, do it. This is the headline in this article in the Washington Post from February 10th, 2015. Obama's latest evolution on gay marriage. He lied about opposing it, Axelrod says. So you, you probably know this story. President Obama, he campaigned against gay marriage until 2012, which is right when public opinion shifted. And there were more people for it than against it. And then he was for it. But then it came out that he had been for it all along. And he had just told people that he was against it because he knew that they would vote against him if he said he was for it. And then there's this other, this other um, headline. Listen to this headline. Obama, colon, I didn't lie about same-sex marriage. So he's saying, I never lied about it. And this quotation is amazing. I'm going to read you this quotation. And, and we're going to, the reason I'm telling you about this is because God is not this way. And we should all rejoice that God is not this way. I'm not saying this to bang on a former president or a political party or something like that. The point here is God is not this way. Listen to this quotation. He's talking about David Axelrod, who has revealed this information that, Dom, that Obama was for it before he was against it, before he was for it, okay? This is what he says. I think David is mixing up my personal feelings with my position on the issue. What he's saying is, my personal feelings were always constant, but my position on the issue changed. And what I'm saying to you is that's not how God is. God's personal feelings will also always be consistent with his position. And his position is clearly spelled out, and it's not going to change. Mixing up my personal feelings with my position on the issue. Look again at verse 138 there. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness. Once again, righteousness, is this is flowing out of who God is. And if you don't have something ultimate, something absolute from which the standards flow, well, all you're going to be left with is shifting winds of public opinion. Or, worse, the shifting whims of the dictator. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. 
And then he, he, he turns outward again, verse 139. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. This is a guy who's zealous for the Bible. And that zeal is eating him up inside because these other people are forgetting the Bible. Verse 140. When he says, your promise is well tried, he uses the same language that you have in Psalm 12. When um, Psalm 12, verse 6, it says... The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times, meaning all of the, all the bad stuff has been, has been burned away out of the words of God. That's what Psalm 12, 6 is saying, and that's what verse 140 is saying. When it says, your promise is well tried, he's saying it's, it's well refined. All the dross has been smelted off that silver, and your servant loves it. If we recognize what this guy is saying about the Bible, we will love the Bible. We will respond, what a blessing to have the Bible. Verse 141. It's easy to identify with this guy. He says, I am small and despised. I am of little account and people don't respect me. I am small and despised, yet... I do not forget your precepts. Look at the contrast between verse 139, my foes forget your words, and verse 141, I do not forget your precepts. He's saying, even though they're against me, even though the opposition is fierce, I am not forgetting your precepts. Verse 142, your righteousness is righteous forever. Your righteousness is righteous forever forever. And your law is true. What he's saying is it's not going to change. So I'm going to read to you some more about this, about this, about Joseph Stalin on, on this point. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Because at one point in Stalin's rule, it was righteous to be a certain way. And then at a later point in Stalin's rule, it became righteous to be another way. And you know what happened to the people who were righteous the first way? Let me read to you. Across the 1930s, but especially 1937 and 1938, Stalin ordered the arrests of some 1.6 million party officials. These are people that are in the Communist Party. 1.6 million of them. These are people committed to what were his ideas. Military officers, intelligence agents, and others on trumped-up charges of betraying the nation. A stunning display of ruthlessness that gutted Soviet leadership circles at, at a time of mounting threats from abroad. Some victims were convicted in dramatic show trials. Far more were murdered quietly, often after being tortured into confessing their supposed crimes. The, the, in him, there is no true standard of righteousness according to which he's always operating. It's just whatever's convenient for him and whatever he ultimately wants to do. And, and if we ask, how do we explain this? I'm going to read to you, this is actually about Marx, from this book by Paul Johnson. This is what he says. Uh, and, and Paul Johnson is quoting somebody writing about Marx. Quote, Marx does not believe in God, but he believes much in himself and makes everyone serve himself. His heart is not full of love, but of bitterness, and he has very little sympathy for the human race. If you don't believe in God, if there's no ultimate absolute standard, where does your standard of righteousness come from? 
If you don't believe in God and you don't hold to an absolute uh, righteous standard that ultimately flows out of the character of God, on what grounds do you want to critique the, bio, the God of the Bible? Because often people that, that want to critique the God of the Bible, they want to use the Bible's morality to do it, as though God is somehow not living up to his own standards. But if you don't have that God whose character establish those, establishes those standards, you can't have those standards. Where are you going to base them? Look again at verse 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever. The goal line is fixed and it's not changing. And it's true. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Verse 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out. What he's saying is I'm living in a broken world and I'm suffering. And, and it's come my way. It's found me. But look at the end of verse 143. But your commandments are my delight. Why would he say this? Why would he say to God, your commandments are my delight in the midst of my suffering? He says that because God's commandments, they prohibit what is evil and they prescribe what is good. And, and what that says is, there is a holy and righteous God who intends for this world to be good. And he's powerful enough to make it good at the end. That's why the commandments, just being there, that's why the commandments delight him. Because they say to him, these people advocating wickedness, these people oppressing the righteous for being righteous and promoting, they're not going to have the last word because the commandment is there. The truth is there. Goodness is there. And it's going to prevail in the end. And that's delighting him because of the commandments. Your commandments are my delight. And then he says it again in verse 144. But he changes the word from righteousness in verse 142 to testimonies. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. We're going to have to stop here because I'm not going to keep here, you for another 40 minutes. <laughs> so we're only going to do these two eight-verse sections. But think about what this man is saying here. Your testimonies are righteous forever. You know what he's saying? He's saying something like this. God, when we put you on the witness stand and we ask you to speak, we don't even need to say to you, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. When we put you on the witness stand, your testimonies are going to be righteous forever. And then when he says, give me understanding that I may live, I want to suggest to you there are two, there are two senses of the word live there. On the one hand, what he's saying is, God, your commandments indicate that life is to be lived in a certain way. And your, your commandments, they indicate that if I live this way, I'll experience something like verse 135. And you'll make your face to shine upon me, and I'll know you, and I'll have life. I mean, I think of John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in, at one level... Give me understanding that I may live here, now, before you, with you, in the way that you want people to live. And then at another level, sin brought death into the world. Death, is not, death was not part of God's original creation. 
people rebelled against God, the judgment against that rebellion was, your life ends. And what he seems to be saying throughout, I mean, there are all these, appeal, these, these appeals for life. What he seems to be saying is, I believe that in the end, you're going to conquer death. And I want to live when you conquer death. When you overcome this awful thing that, that entered into the world because of rebellion against you, on that day, I want to live. So I think, that, I think both aspects of life are in, in view here. Life in the here and now, and life on the day of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, in conclusion, this morning, I want to read to you this poem by an old pastor named George Herbert. He lived back in the 1600s. And this is how he responded to the Bible. This poem is called The Holy Scriptures. Actually, the way it's printed, it says the H period scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. O oh, book, infinite sweetness. Let my heart suck every letter and a honey gain. Precious for any grief in any part. To clear the breast, to mollify all pain. Thou art all health. Health thriving till it make a full eternity. Thou art a mass of strange delights where we may wish and take. Ladies, look here. This is the thankful glass mirror that mends the looker's eyes. This is the well that washes what it shows. Who can endear thy praise too much? Thou art heaven's lidger here, working against the states of death and hell. Thou art joy's hansel. Heaven lies flat in thee, subject to every mounter's bended knee. Heaven lies flat in thee, subject to every mounter's bended knee. Let's pray. Father, we want to come to you on our knees, and we want to hear the truth of your word, and we want to respond with gratitude, with joy, with admiration, with worship. Lord, we want to render to you the thanks and praise that you deserve, thanks and praise that you deserve for being a righteous God who is righteous forever. Thanks and praise because in your good pleasure, you have made it so that your private opinions correspond with your public positions. And Lord, we thank you that, that nothing that could happen in the world, not even the threat of the death of your own son, could make you change the standards. Lord, we praise you, we worship you, we pray that you would cause us to treasure your word as we should. We pray that it would be light for our paths, healing for our bones, restoration for our souls, and that which enlightens our eyes and makes us wise. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.